Amen. Let me add my welcome to Nick. It's so good to see you. We are in the middle of a series on the meals that Jesus ate through the Gospel of Luke. We're at our fifth, I think it's our fifth one. And each one has had a theme, if you've noticed. In one, we've talked about Jesus uh, his forgiveness that he extends to the woman. Uh, in another, we talk about God's salvation for all people. Uh, in another one, we talk about the theme of the 5,000. We talked about God's provision that he gives us. Today's meal is a little bit different. It's uh, instead of kind of being that big thing, it's a bit of a downer. Uh, it's a confrontation at the table, and it's between Jesus and the Pharisees. And if you've ever read any of the Gospels at all, this probably doesn't surprise you. Uh, often Jesus was critiquing or confronting the Pharisees uh, over their kind of religiosity. The Pharisees, if you don't know, they're, they're keepers of the law. They would have been respected community leaders as well. They would have taught. They would have uh, taught in the synagogue. They would have had a lot going on. They had a sense of their own kind of right standing before God uh, in how well they kind of kept the letter of the law. That was sort of how they regulated their lives. And what they'd done along the way is they had added a lot of sort of additional rules to live out the law uh, in what they thought was according to what God would want. And so there's all kinds of additional little things that they had tucked in. So it would be similar to some of the things we might do today. Uh, what's a rule that we have that's not really important for living the Christian life, but it might be something that we get on about. Might be wearing hats at church. You won't find that in the Bible, but for some generations, that's a really big deal, right? No? Well, I've lived at a time where it was. <laughs> when uh, we lived in Eston, going to school, uh, farm country, right? And so the farmers were in their work clothes all week, and you dressed up for Sunday. That was just part of the culture. And as college students, we too were told, you need to dress up for Sunday also. Uh, you won't find that word, but it was an additional sort of rule. The issue with the Pharisees, not saying that's a good path, it's not quite concerned, and I'm just saying these things exist. Uh, the thing with the Pharisees is they had made such a big deal out of these additional things that along the way, their love of their, their traditions and their public affection, which is so slippery, right? As soon as people start kind of giving you accolades and thinking you're really something, uh, that can get really dangerous. So this had happened to them. They had lots of additional rules that they kept really good and thought they were pretty good for keeping them. Lots of people liked them and, and respected them, and this had started to breed a sort of hypocrisy or self-righteousness in their hearts. Uh, it's easy to just kind of go, well, the Pharisees are bad guys, but really they're a lot like you and me. They are people who want to follow God and had kind of lost their way as they were trying to do so. Uh, so next time you read this, maybe put yourself in their shoes and go, man, if Jesus had shown up and I thought this was what God had wanted, I probably wouldn't have been very impressed with him either, right? Jesus does confront them, and he's confronting the issues in their hearts. He talks to the Pharisees, and he talks to the lawyers also, with six woes. Did you notice all the woes? Thought you was reading? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. There's six woes, three to the Pharisees and three to the lawyers. I want to look at each woe, because each woe kind of talks about a sin or an issue that Jesus wants to confront in their hearts. But it would be wrong to leave us uh, just with hearing the woes and the conviction that Jesus wants to bring to these people because of the woes. It would be wrong to leave us there because we're talking about Jesus. 
And the good news of Jesus is that he has come not to try and make us better people, but to actually deliver us out of our self-righteousness and out of our sin and out of our evil and out of our death. And he does that by taking the cross and dying in your place and mine for the sin that we bear. So whenever we talk about Jesus, we need to keep that cross first and foremost in our minds. That while he's convicting kind of these religious leaders in this case, there's also an invitation for us who read to turn from the similar temptations we face and follow Jesus instead. So as we, as we look at these, let that kind of settle in your heart and we're going to kind of reverse them as we get to the end and talk about how can we live and follow Jesus uh, based on the sorts of things that he's confronting here. Each woe is a reminder of the life we're called to leave behind. Think about it like that. And it's, it's really in contrast to serving and following Jesus. So he's, he's not just mad at these people. Okay, He's confronting kind of a religious system in his day that's really lost the heart of God. No longer embodies God's love or justice or compassion. We'll see that in a minute. So the first part, if you have your Bibles open, the first part, uh, your Bible probably has these in paragraphs, actually, if you look. Verses 37 to 41, Jesus confronts kind of a heart issue. The Pharisees have focused on this great outward life, right, where you look really put together and you look really righteous and you look really spiritual. But their inward life was full of wickedness and evil. They were just a mess inside. Okay? That's kind of the heart of the issue. The second part are the woes to the Pharisees. Uh, he exposes their hypocrisy and pride and he calls them back to integrity. So that's verses 42 to, to 44. And then the third part, the longer part, is the woes to the lawyers. And he again exposes their hypocrisy. It's kind of an issue for Jesus. And especially also their false interpretation of Scripture, also a big deal for Jesus. And in doing so, he calls them, and as readers, he calls us to come to a true knowledge of God and to be people who invite the world into relationship with him, which the, which the lawyers and the, and the Pharisees were not to So let's dive into that first part, the inner life part, verses 37 to 41. Just take a look at that part. It's, it's, it's summary. It's about this, this idea that something can look fine or healthy or good on the outside and be a real rotting kind of mess on the inside. When Sarah and I lived in Vancouver, uh, we rented a basement suite from this wonderful woman who lived above us. And one day, I don't know how, this, how it started, but she, I don't know if she came to the door, Sarah, Sarah remind me. Uh, she said, <laughs> She got my attention, and I think she came to the door, and she said, I have something I need you to deal with. And I was like, okay, I don't know what it is. You know what, now that I think that I might have discovered it on my own, but pretty soon we were all trying to figure out what to do. Uh, she's wonderful, fantastic lady. She had had some meat in the fridge, and it was past, she wasn't going to use it anymore. I think it was past due. Looking at Sarah. It was past due. It was fish. It was fish. She'd thrown it in the garbage can outside, which is a black can, and it was sunny. The can looked fine on the outside. It was clean. You know, it had nice yard clippings on it, mowing the lawn. It was all good. It was next to a big recycling bin. It looked great. But when you opened the black garbage can, 
Out spilled the maggots. Out they came in heaps and hordes, just kind of flowing out, coming out at you. The can looked fine on the outside. It was a mess inside. I learned very quickly how to kill a lot of maggots. Um, blast them with anything you can find, chemically. Uh, but the trick is boil water. I boiled so much water. Uh, just every pot was on the stove, boiling water, and they died. It's really effective. Uh, and then we cleaned the can. She felt terrible, and she told me later said, I was having nightmares about it the next, the next night. I, in my sleep, I opened something, and there was maggots, and fish. It was really gross. All that to say, we cleaned it up, it was fine. She sung the praises for the next month or so. Just thank you for saving me from the maggots. And uh, yeah, it was really good. But uh, to illustrate the point, right? Things can look totally fine on the outside. Fish can look fine on the outside. Garbage can look pretty un unassuming from the outside. But once you kind of opened it up and checked the inside, it was another story entirely. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to in the hearts of these Pharisees. He says, you look great on the outside. You look put together on the outside. You're well-dressed, right? You look like a good, good follower of God, you could say. But you're actually completely rotten on the inside. You've got all the outward trappings, but you're full of sin inside. And so Jesus goes to this guy's house, this Pharisee's house, and he purposely doesn't wash. This isn't about hygiene. This was a, one of those extra rules I was talking about. This was an additional ceremonial washing. It's one of those extra traditions that the Pharisee set up, and Jesus purposely doesn't do it to rile up the host. That's so good. I don't know if it's quite passive-aggressive, but, you know, he gets right to it. He doesn't wash, because he knows it's going to throw this guy, and it's going to become this teachable moment. These guys thought they were all good on the outside, right? Everything's great, but inside they lost their way. When he realizes that Jesus hasn't washed, it really throws him, because he's put such thought in these kind of outward exercises, but he's lost the point of having his heart right before God. That's the issue. So he says, you're all looking in the outside, but you've ignored the sin on the inside. You're full of wickedness. You're full of greed. So the solution is, it's fairly obvious. And all of us can struggle with this, folks, where we think our outward lives are pretty good, but we've neglected something in our hearts. And the, the solution is to get your heart right for God. It's not complicated. It's a matter of saying, Lord, reveal to me the things in my heart where I've fallen away from you. Usually, uh, you will know if there's something going on in your own heart that you're ignoring giving to God. If you follow Jesus for any length of time, you will probably have the sense from the Holy Spirit of something that you need to confess or let go of or deal with, and uh, you know, you're kind of weighing whether you really want to go there or not. This happens to me anyway. Uh, this is, this is a call for us to recognize the outside stuff's not bad. It's not, it's not as though the outward things don't matter. But to do the outward things and miss the inward things to take a big misstep. Our outward actions as Christians don't save us. Your outward actions don't actually really alter your standing before God a whole lot. It may feel like that's what you should do. It may feel like God's relationship with you or his love towards you is kind of based on your performance. It's actually not at all. It's not based on your performance. It's based on you 
receiving by faith the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's it. But once that life has begun in you, once you've come to the Lord and, and said, oh, Jesus, I want to follow you. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe you rose again. I believe you're the only one who makes sense of this life in this world. I want to follow you. As that life begins to, to happen within you, as the relationship begins to grow, it will result in wanting to do outward things. It will result in living out your faith, as James calls us. Time and time again, faith without works is dead. But the faith is what produces the works. It's from this place of being internally right before God that we can then live out our faith properly. What the Pharisees are doing is they're living out a faith, but internally there's nothing there. You see the difference? One is a salvation that, that, that spurs us to want to obey and love God. The other one is thinking, I'm just going to fulfill this duty to make God obey and love me. And it just doesn't work that way. It's backwards. That's the issue. You see the difference? One is doing the outward things, but having your inward life off kilter. Jesus calls us to get our inward life and faith with Christ first and allow that to propel us into loving and serving God, getting the outward things right. You see the difference? So the first call for us in this, this whole conversation about cleansing the outside and the inside is to is, is really this. If you think that following God's only about the outward trappings, but you've left your heart walled off to God, you haven't let him in, you'll be filled with hypocrisy, just like these Pharisees. You'll be clean on the outside. People think you look fantastic, but you'll be dirty on the inside. You'll look fully serviceable and functional on the outside, but the black garbage can, and inside be full of rotting maggots. So the first call for us is, is get your heart right with God. Come to him. Let him cleanse you. Let him forgive you. Let him wash you. Let him start a new life with you. And then begin to live that out as you follow him. Now, the second part is the three woes to the hip Pharisees, okay? So take a look at verses 42 and 44 if you have your Bibles open. Each of these illustrate the hypocrisy. Each of these illustrate the way in which they're doing the outward thing, but they've lost the inward thing, okay? They're all examples. So the first woe. He says, you tithed mint and rue and herbs, but you neglected the justice and love of God. Uh, tithing was this practice in the Old Testament of taking 10% of, of your first fruits of your crop, uh, or of your flock, or whatever you might have, and giving that back to God. Um, it, it was almost like, well, all of it is God's. The whole earth and all that he's given me is really his. And so really he you know, deserves all of it. Uh, but he calls me to give back 10% as a way of trusting him and thanking him, and I live off the 90. Uh, the Pharisees had done this, but they'd done it with crops that were so inconsequential that it almost didn't even really matter. You don't get any reference to the mint and the rue and the herbs in, in, in the parts about tithing, at least I can't find it. So here they are. It would be like this. You've got a little shelf, maybe, or something, and you're growing a little plant of some kind. You know? Got some chives or something. There they are. And you're so particular about following the tithing law that you, like, measure it out. Figure out what 10% is. You clip that. You've got your little thing. few little things. You know? You bring that, and you throw it in the offering plate, and you think, I'm, I'm awesome. Fantastic. I tithe my little... My little thing of mint. Jesus says, 
That's fine. Way to go. You did that. But along the way, you missed the heart of God. And the heart of God is justice for the oppressed and love for your neighbor. You could tie all the little props in the world, but if you've missed the heart of God to love him and love your neighbor and seek the justice of the oppressed, you're empty on the inside. That's what that's about. That's what the first one is about. You can get so legalistic about things that you can forget that the call for us as followers of Christ is to love God and love our neighbor. And if that has taken second place to some other little thing, it's become idolatry. So that's the first woe. You miss the first, you miss the most important thing. Second woe, you guys love the best seats in the house. You're full of pride. That's opposite of God's character. You really like people's public opinion of you. There's no humility left. That's the second woe. Third woe, he says, you're like unmarked graves, verse 44. That's a startling comparison, because in the Old Testament, in Numbers, coming into contact with a grave made you ceremonially unclean. So if you touch the grave, uh, it made you unclean, and there's a process to become ritually pure, ritually clean again. Um, but the idea was, you don't come into contact with dead things, just kind of haphazardly, then waltz into God's presence. Uh, God has a way in which to purify and cleanse you, so that you can kind of come back into a relationship with him. You're not out of relationship with him. It's not a sin to be unclean, but it's a state of recognizing God's holiness and our unholiness. Does that make sense? If you've been reading through Numbers or Deuteronomy or Leviticus uh, with the Bible reading plan, you'll have gotten a lot of this. But here Jesus is saying, if there's a grave in the ground and it's not marked, a person could just walk over it, right? You know, you know, you have the cemetery where the, kind of the gravestones kind of not really marked very well, and you're kind of like, whoa, whoa, you don't step on that person. You know, you don't know where they are anymore because it's kind of worn down. Do you know what I mean? No one's ever done this. We've never also found a grave. No. <laughs> the point is that if there's grave in the ground and it's unmarked, you could step over it and make yourself unclean without realizing it. Jesus is saying, you guys are like that. You're leading people astray. And the people don't even realize it because they trust you so much. You are like unmarked graves. The way you, you dealt with people and come into contact with them, they trust you, but you're leading them away from God. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a startling claim. Without even knowing it, people can lead them astray. Jesus is on the one. So how do you summarize these, the woes of the Pharisees? Essentially it's this. Jesus says there's a danger in getting lost in the minute details and neglecting the weightier matters of justice and mercy and compassion and serving, caring for the poor, all this sort of thing. And friends, we can face the same thing. We can get lost in our own kind of ideas about what's most important in life, whatever that might be. But if that takes the primary place in your life and serving God loving your neighbor starts to become second, we start to become hypocritical. It becomes a danger. And that's what Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees, and we need to hear that too. Now the third part, the woes of the lawyers, very quickly, uh, as we kind of fly through this, then we'll talk a little bit about how it all applies to us. Very similar kind of theme. The first woe, woe to the lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one finger. Essentially, these guys interpreted the law. They added in all these extra traditions and, and, and rules and whatnot. 
but they made it so hard for people to actually follow it. So they said, this stuff's really important, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, it would be like this big checklist, here's all the stuff you gotta do. And it was so hard, no one could really do it. And they hadn't even come alongside to say, well, here, here's, how you can, here's how we can help you do it. They just loaded people with all these expectations that didn't even bother helping them. Jesus says, whoa, you're leading people astray. The second woe, uh, it's a little bit hard to follow, but essentially he says, you honor God's prophets. You, you build their tombstones and you talk big about the prophets that God sent, but he, your fathers are the ones that killed the prophets. They didn't listen to God. And neither are you. You're complicit in ignoring God's word to his people. And the third woe, he's essentially saying, You've taken away the key of knowledge. He said, you've refused to enter into God's plan to be saved, and now you're leading people astray from God's plan to be saved also. So in all these things, it's like the lawyers are distracted, they've overburdened the people, they're, they're misleading the people, it's, it's hypocritical. And Jesus takes, how takes it to them. It's, it's a similar thing to this for us, folks. We don't really have these sorts of people in our lives today, but it would be like uh, noticing the person who always is kind of first at church, for instance, and they sit up and they take notes and they sing great and whatever, and they serve in all sorts of ways. But Jesus says, you can look fantastic on the outside and you look like you're really serving God, but be really a mess inside. You can be leading people astray, probably without realizing it. You can make a bigger deal of the extra rules and, and lose the heart of God and justice and mercy and love. And if we're not careful... We as religious people can, can breed a sort of pride and arrogance within us. And that's what Jesus wants to get at. It's a challenge, folks, for us to look in the mirror. We're called to look at our own hearts, I think, and ask, uh, have I made my faith a matter of pride? Have I become attracted to acting righteously, but I refuse to actually deal with my own sin? Have I, by the way I live, actually maybe hindered people from coming to faith in Christ rather than leading them to death? That's a hard one. And uh, that's something I struggle with. Have I unintentionally uh, led someone astray rather than leading them to the king? What's so great about all of this, this convicting word, is that we're talking about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't leave us in the place of conviction. He won't leave us there. Instead, he wants to lead, he wants to lead the Pharisees, and he will follow, and he wants to lead us back to relationship and health and standing with God again. So implicit in the call uh, of these woes is a call to change, right? You're doing this. You need to stop. You need to change. In the same way, we're called to turn from our own sin and our own hypocrisy and our own pride, whatever that looks like, might not be where you might have come up where you were tithing your wings, you know, but it might have been something else. And we need to pursue God and allow Jesus to transform us and cleanse us from the inside and let that light shine. This is a great encouragement for us that following God isn't about winning his favor, right? It's about coming to Jesus, surrendering your life to him, and allowing him to change you from the inside out. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. I want to read this verse to you. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Such a good reminder for us. If anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. Isn't that good? When you come to faith in Christ, when you enter into relationship with Jesus, you become a new creation. 
He is doing a new work in you. He is bringing you back to life out of the place of sin and death. It's a new creation. You're not the same as you once were. That is an ongoing work. The old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 18, and then he says this, All this is from God. You don't bring about a new creation work in your own life. It's a gift from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. Not through your good works, not through your good looks, not through your education, or lack thereof, or whatever. Through Christ, he's reconciled us to himself. Jesus wants to lead you out of death and out of sin, all the woe stuff, and into his life and into his purpose. New creation. So what can we what can we do instead of living out the six woes or being tempted to live out the six woes? I want to take each woe, I'm going to flip it on its head, and suggest that this is a way that Jesus not just calls us to live, but actually empowers us to live. So it's one thing to say, here's all the the words of the worst kind of sermons to tell all of you. Here's all the things you should be doing. And you leave feeling, I have so much to do, I feel terrible, I can never do it. It's so pleasant. This is the worst. I want, to, I want to inspire you to live this way with, with the understanding that it's not about you just trying harder, it's about allowing the Holy Spirit to live it out within you. God will actually bring about this change of life and character within you as you let him. So this isn't just Nick telling you to try harder. This is Nick inviting you to surrender and allow Christ to come transform your life. See the difference? Let's look at each of these woes. I'm going to look at the sixth of woes. We're going to work back up the text now, okay? Verse 52 says, Woe to the lawyers. You obscured knowledge of God. What's the flip of this? Jesus has saved us to live out a life of faith and action every day. Rather than obscuring the word, we're called to live out the word. In all the places where you work, and where you study, and where you live, where you watch TV, and everything in between, you're called to live out the gospel and allow that to, to center and divide your life. We are to be people of the gospel. Woe number five is rather than ignoring God's word from the prophets and the apostles, Jesus calls us instead to be people of the word be grounded in scripture, to be grounded in good teaching, um, to be under the inspiration of the Spirit, to be people of the Word. So we're called to be people of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, people of Scripture. The fourth one, he was it was about the lawyers burdening people with, with extra stuff to do. I think Christ calls us rather than burdening people with all of our criticism, all of our ideas of what they should be doing better, Jesus calls us to extend grace and hope to people in need. To come, and come alongside the people that least deserve it. That's what he calls us to. So rather than burning people, like the lawyers did, Jesus calls us to be people of compassion. The third one was the unmarked graves one. So rather than accidentally misleading people, Jesus calls us to be faithful witnesses his power and his grace in our lives. We're to be people that point to Christ. We're to be Christ-centered people. The second woe was about uh, loving the best seat in the house. That's verse 43. Rather than being guided by pride, I think Jesus calls us to live the life of a humble servant. And that means laying down our lives for the good of the neighbor. We're called to be people of humility. 
And the first one, the big one, is about tithing the mint and neglecting God's justice and love. Rather than being legalistic in our faith, Jesus calls us to be marked by God's love and God's justice. And that means a care for the downtrodden and the broken in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our world. This is what Christ has come to do, folks. He's come to reverse our own sin and our own evil, the way in which we contribute to the brokenness of the world every day. He wants to reverse that in our hearts and call us to be people of faith, people of humility, people of justice, people of compassion. That's what he calls us to. It's a radical contrast, isn't it, to our own world? It's a radical contrast to the sorts of debates maybe you see on TV or on Facebook these days. Right? To be people who are humble, who are compassionate, who point, point the world to Christ in our actions and in our words. That's the calling, the invitation that Jesus invites you to. So ask yourself this week, as we wrap this up this week, how can you uh, follow outliving the justice and the love of God? Where are the places in your own life where you can love a neighbor uh, that maybe you've neglected to love? Where can you mend a relationship where you've neglected to mend it? Where can you start to be faithful in a way that you haven't been? Where can you learn to be humble in a way that you've been prideful? And don't just do that by kind of drumming up extra energy to say, I'm just going to start living this new life all on my own, positive thinking. It doesn't work that way. This is about coming to faith in Christ and allowing Him to transform you from the inside out. And just praying simply every day, Lord, let me not be taken aback by my own righteousness, my own self-idolatry, my own ambition. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I'm reminded of that great verse in Micah 6, 8. A lot of you will know this. Jesus, is, is, I think, has this also in the back of his mind as he's, as he's confronting the Pharisees here. Micah 6, 8 says this. He's told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the call. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly. So folks, let's be a church known for our love of justice and our love of kindness towards others and a humility of character before God. Let's let that be our aim, both in our own individual lives and our corporate life as a church. And let's let Christ lead us into that life by the power of the Holy Spirit, not dropping up our own surrendering to him and inviting him to transform our lives from the inside out. Let's do that. Let me pray for you. Lord, thanks that you don't leave us in comfortable places where we're actually broken inside. Lord, thank you that you see through the facades that we put in. Things we show in front of others to say we're doing pretty good when actually we're really not. Lord, thank you that we can trust you with our brokenness and with our fears, with our anxieties, Lord. Thank you that you love and you listen and you care. Lord, you, you love these Pharisees. You don't speak this word because you, you hate them, because you love them and you call them to change. 
Lord, sometimes our sin doesn't seem very real. It doesn't seem very uh, troubling to us. But Lord, it's a big deal to you. Father, I pray that we would recognize uh, just how deep our sinfulness goes so that we can then discover afresh how deep and rich your love and your compassion goes for us. So Lord, I pray for all of us that struggle with some of these things, whether we've made our faith just about actions on the outside but we've lost our heart after you. Lord, would you forgive us? And would you call us to new life? Lord, for those of us who have just become prideful over time, we've lost that sense of humility and servanthood. Lord, would you come and tear down that pride? Make us humble before you. Lord, in the places where it's been easier to scoff and blame others for the hurt in the world, where we see brokenness and complain about the reasons it's there instead of lending a hand. Lord, I pray that you would work a compassionate heart in us. Lord, that you give us a heart for justice as your heart is. And Lord, I pray that you would deepen in us a love for you and a love for one another. There's that old song that says, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Father, I pray that that would be so true of us here in this room. That as we leave this place and head to our work weeks and head back to school, head back to family life, whatever it might be, back to friends and relationships and all the ongoing things in our lives, 